And he, that's Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let me pray. Our Father, your word is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. We pray now, as we hear it this morning, uh, that you would give us a sense and a true understanding of its value and of its sweetness and goodness for us. Uh, we pray, therefore, that you would send your spirit so we might receive these words with joy and see more clearly our Saviour and his rescue. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come with me to a garden. Uh, we're in Israel in the Middle East, and it's a cold night, as the other Gospels tell us. Uh, the air would be scented with the smell of olive oil. This is the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, means an olive press, a garden where they would gather the olives, press them to produce sweet oil. Uh, we're on a hill. Uh, on the Mount of Olives, and stretching down below is the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's dusk, it's dark, and so there'd be just a few glimmers of light, a few fires flickering as the night draws in. Uh, but we're not alone in this garden. Twelve men enter the garden, uh, and one detaches from them. Uh, Jesus leaves the eleven disciples, Judas having already gone to betray him, and goes forward just a few yards, a stone's throw, and falls to his ground, falls to the ground to kneel to pray. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now he prays, and as you watch, perhaps stranger still, another man appears out of nowhere, a man of immense strength and power and glory. And this man appears to be comforting the praying man. And you realise, verse 43, that this new man is an angel sent from heaven to strengthen God's son in his hour of need. But the praying goes on. And Jesus keeps praying. In fact, this time he falls on his face. And he seems to be in agony. Verse 44, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing 
Uh, really, this is on verses 41 to 44 of this account. What is going on? Uh, what are we meant to understand as we look in on this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, two things by way of uh, context to help us understand what's going on. And then two messages from it. Uh, the two things we need to understand are the, are the context of the story and then the cup. The context and the cup. The, the context, you'll see, is the night before the crucifixion. Uh, when is this happening? Uh, look at verse 21 of the same chapter. Uh, Jesus says, chapter 22 and verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This is at the Lord's Supper. It's the night before he was betrayed. Judas is sat there. Verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. The Son of Man is Jesus. He's referring to himself. And he's saying, look, I'm off. I'm going. He's not going on a journey. He's not going for a holiday. He's going to the cross. This is it. He knows his last hour is here. And so as he leaves that room, leaves the upper room in the house in Jerusalem and heads up the mountain to pray, this is the last time before he's arrested, put on trial and crucified. This is, if you like, Jesus' last quiet time, although it's far from quiet, as he calls out in agony to God. And why the agony? Well, if the context is he's going to the cross, the cup tells us why he is so concerned. Verse 42, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What is this cup that Jesus wants taken out of his hands? There is no literal cup. He's praying in a garden. But, but the cup is a reference, a reference to the Old Testament, where time and again, the, the cup is used as an image of God's anger at sin. Uh, so several times in the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, these men who are sent by God warn the people that if they don't turn back to God, God will pour out his wrath on them, or they will have to drink down the cup of his anger. So in Jeremiah 25, God says this through Jeremiah, take this cup of the wine of my wrath. There we go. Take this cup of the wine of my wrath, take it from my hand and cause all the nations who I send you to, to drink it. So if you like, Jeremiah is meant to be symbolically going to these different nations who've been attacking God's people and the, the cup, imagine, it's almost like a cup of poison, a cup of God's anger, children. And God says, each nation has to drink it all. You'll have to bear all my anger at your sin, at your attack on my people. Another time, though, God sends Isaiah, and it's to his own people. And he warns them that, that they will have to drink from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. They'll have to drink to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Okay, the cup is an image for God's anger at sin. In, in our society, we tend to think of sin as something a bit naughty, don't we? A few years ago, you had the ice cream adverts, uh, the seven deadly sins, there's a magnum. And sin is just something a bit... Just a bit cheeky you do on the side. We don't think that our behaviour has consequences, but God is really clear. A sin or rebellion against God, ignoring God, has consequences. We will face justice. Someone is going to drink this cup. And the astounding thing in the garden is that God's beloved son, the one 
who, if we'd read all the way through Luke's gospel, the one who God said, I'm delighted with. Uh, the one who God called from heaven and said, look, I'm well pleased with you. He is the one who is looking forward and saying, I am going to have to drink this cup. So, so what does Jesus fear? And I don't think it's, it's wrong to talk about his fear here. He's not a coward, but he has a right fear of what's coming. What does he fear? Not just crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion is horrific, isn't it? Uh, so horrific that, 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 that we just don't want to think about it. And in polite society, it just wasn't talked about. In fact, Roman citizens weren't, weren't crucified because it was too shameful a death, too horrific a death. But it's not that itself that the pain of crucifixion that Jesus is trembling before. What he's trembling before is the thought that he, when he's being crucified, will actually be bearing God's wrath. Somehow, and there's mystery here, and I don't think we can fully understand it, but somehow as he dies on the cross, he is being punished for our sin. God's anger is being poured on Jesus for his people's sin. Now, that is why he trembles. That's why the angel needs to strengthen him. Many men have gone bravely to their death, haven't they? We, we read stories about war heroes uh, who nobly and heroically and seemingly without fear go and face death. And we might read this passage and get so many and think, well, Jesus is a coward compared to them. But no, it is not simply death he fears but rather the wrath of God. Uh, and already there's, there's a lesson there, isn't there? Jesus, the son of God, trembles at the thought of facing his father's wrath. So, so how blind, staggeringly drunk must we be if we don't? And perhaps we assume that if we die and if there is a God we face him, then fundamentally he's just going to be well pleased with us. And perhaps we assume that, that God's basic attitude towards us is one of, well, pretty pleased. We're not perfect, but when Jesus sees what it's like to face the anger of God, he sweats blood. It is a serious thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. A God who is rightly angry at our sin. So knowing he's going to the cross and knowing that it's not just physical death, but paying uh, the penalty for mankind's rebellion, facing the wrath of God. That is the, the context. That is why Jesus is sweating blood and calling out. But I want to think, think this morning uh, about the, the challenge of Gethsemane and then the comfort of Gethsemane, the challenge and the, the comfort. Let's just dig a little bit deeper. Verse 42, the challenge. Father, if you're willing, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Now, children, um, let me ask you how, I'm going to ask you two questions, maybe three. First of all, how many gods are there? One God. Okay, good start. Uh, let me ask you another question. How many persons are there in God? Emma, on a roll. Three. Okay, and the last question is, who are those three persons? There was going to be three questions, weren't they? Uh, go on, Abs. Father. Father, the Holy Spirit, and who's the other one? The Son. Brilliant. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've got one God, three persons. Okay, here, there's the Trinity. Going deep, aren't we? There's the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is this a fight between them? 
So we've got two of them here, haven't we? We've got the Father in heaven and Jesus the Son praying. Are they falling out? Are they disagreeing on the plan? You've got the Son praying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Now, there's only one God. God's only got one will. Okay? The, the Trinity never disagree on anything because there's only one God. It's mysterious, isn't it? Three but one. But there's only one will in God. They have one plan. They never have to sit down and talk about it. What are we going to do tomorrow? It's never the case that the Holy Spirit says, well, what about this way of saving people? And the Son says, well, I wondered about this way. And the Father says, well, hey, what about we bring a bit of both your plans and we'll, we'll bring them together? And what about this as a compromise? No, there's only one God. They have one will, one plan, one set of ideas. And yet Jesus can pray, not my will, but yours. What's going on there? This is a conversation that could not have happened 35 years before Gethsemane, 50 years before Gethsemane. This is a conversation that only happens because God the Son has become a man as well. He remains what he is, the Son of God, but he becomes man. Jesus is a real human being, and nowhere do we see it more clearly than here in the garden. He's a real, full human being. It's not a sham. So he's not a superhuman like Superman, who kind of looks like a man, but really is a kind of super tough, I don't know what he is actually, (laughs) an alien, whatever he is. He's not a superhuman. Uh, Neither does he just look like a man, but is really God in disguise. I once heard a, a minister um, he was far more engaging than I ever am, and he was strutting across the stage, backward and forwards, and he talked about the time that God came out of heaven and slipped on a skin suit. Okay, and that's a slick flurry, isn't it? Slipped on a skin suit, uh, as if you know, God the Son came down and just disguised himself like a human being, whilst really he just stayed God. It makes Jesus like one of those Scooby-Doo baddies. Remember Scooby-Doo? This might be slightly of an era. But, you know, there was always like a ghost or a ghoul or a monster or something, and at the end, when the... When the, when the um, the goodies, Scooby-Doo and his friends caught them, they'd pull off the mask and it was always Mr. Jones the janitor or whatever underneath. All along, it wasn't a ghost or a ghoul or Frankenstein, it was just a human being. Jesus is not a Scooby-Doo baddie. He's not God just disguising himself to look like a man. He remains what he was, God, the son. But when he's born, or even when he's conceived in Mary's womb, he adds to himself a whole human nature. He's really really human. He is as human. You might even say more human than you or me. Everything you have, he has, apart from sin. Jesus has a human emotions. He has a human body. He has a human mind. And he has a human will. So, Jesus has two wills. He remains God, so he has God's will, but he also has a human will. And it is as man that he is praying here. It is as man that he has to be willing to go to the cross. And as a man, he has a right horror at that thought. Not a disobedient horror. He's not trying to get out of something. He's not trying to argue against his father. But according to his human nature, he has a right godly fear, we might say. Hence the prayer. It is a right instinct to want to not have to bear his father's anger. And yet, see how submissive he is. Ultimately, not my will, but yours. He's saying, not not what's comfortable for me, not what's going to make my life easier, but your will, Father. 
whatever comes, it is your will that matters to me most. He is there truly human. And the answer to the prayer is, or should be astounding. The, the, the man who God the Father has loved most in all of history, the one who he has called out of heaven twice already in the gospel and said, you, you are the one whom I love. You are my beloved son. Falls on his knees. Every time he's prayed in the gospel so far, the father has answered his prayers. Jesus prays for disciples to be given him and the father sends disciples. Every time Jesus goes out and prays, the father answers. What happens this time? His greatest request remove this cup from me. And what is the answer? How does the father answer the one who he is declared to be his son who he loves? How does the father answer the one whom he has taught, ask and it will be given you? Silence. Read the verses, there is no answer. If you've ever seen the, the opening of parliament, the British parliament, uh, when the Queen comes, children, I wonder if you've seen this, you can watch this on, on YouTube later. When, when Parliament starts, the Queen comes to open Parliament. But for various reasons, that the Parliament uh, always have this tradition. And the tradition is meant to remind the Queen that ultimately they're in charge, not her. So when the Queen comes to Parliament, she sends one of her servants called Black Rod. And he's got, unsurprisingly, a black stick, okay, a black rod. He goes ahead and he knocks on the door with his big stick. So he gets his big stick and he bangs on the door of Parliament. And the door, these massive great doors, are slammed in his face so that he can't come in. The Queen can't come in. Okay, the royal ruler asks to come in and the doors are slammed shut in her face. That is what happens here to Jesus. Okay, the beloved Son of God looks up to heaven Father, remove this cup from me, and it's as if the gates of heaven are slammed shut in his face. There is no answer. And, and this gets us to the challenge of Gethsemane. Is there any other way to heaven than through the cross of Christ? Is there any other way that men and women can be saved other than through this wrath-bearing death of Christ? No. How do we know that? We know that for all sorts of reasons, but here in Gethsemane, how do we know that? Remember what we said earlier. Jesus is is realising that (coughs) this cup of God's anger, he is going to have to drink to get rid of God's anger at our sin. He's realising it's going to be a terrible experience. That's why he's sweating blood. How cruel would the Father be, God the Father be, to make Jesus go ahead to drink the cup if actually there was another way into heaven? How cruel of God not to answer if actually there was a way? Perhaps you know, children, the story in the Old Testament. Do you know the story of Abraham and Isaac? And at one point, God says to to Abraham, I want you to take your Isaac, your only son, your son whom you love. And the way the story is told is it's meant to make us think a bit of Jesus because he's described in the same way, your only son, the son whom you love. And Abraham is told by God, I want to take your son up the mountain, your only son. And I want you to sacrifice him. And it's a long story and it takes a bit of time and 
Abraham doesn't quite tell Isaac exactly what's going on straight away, but eventually they get to this mountain, Mount Moriah, which actually is the place where Jesus ends up dying. Um, and they go up the mountain, and, and, and Abraham picks up Isaac and binds him, ties him, puts him on the, the altar to sacrifice him. And you're reading the story, and you're thinking, this is, this is horrendous, what's going on? God, all the way through the Bible, says child sacrifice is an abomination, terrible thing. And just at the last minute, God calls and says, stop, Abraham, no, don't do it. And he looks around and there's a ram. God provides a ram. And the ram dies for sin instead of the beloved son. Now, can you imagine Abraham's relief? Oh, there's a ram. Something else is going to die. Not my son, but something else. Not the beloved son dying, but this ram's going to die. Thank goodness. Imagine Isaac's relief. So Abraham sacrifices the ram. But also, could you imagine the voice coming from heaven? Abraham, stop. I've provided a ram. And Abraham saying, no, let's go with Isaac. <laughs> okay, look, look, I'll stick with plan A. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac instead. Isaac's saying, what are you doing? There's a ram. <laughs> no, well, you know, yeah, loads of ways, loads of ways. I prefer this one. Let's, let's go with this plan. Let me go. Okay, we, we laugh about it because it's so farcical. But it would also be brutally cruel if it happened. If there was another way for God the Father to forgive mankind other than through the death of his son, would he not have taken it? There's huge pressure nowadays uh, to say that ultimately all religions lead to God. Different paths up the same mountain. So some of you are Christians and that's nice. You believe in Jesus, he died for your sins and... But other people, well, Muslims, believe in the five pillars of Islam, and that's another route up the mountain. Others are, are Buddhists, just meditate, and, you know, that, that's the way that you can sort of experience eternal life. Other people are, well, not particularly religious, but we've got our middle-class Western values, and that'll do the job too. But there is no way to eternal life other than through trusting Jesus' death in our place. Gethsemane is, if you like, bellowing that at us. In some ways, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty stark passage this morning, isn't it? You know, there are parts of the Bible that are comforting and sweet. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There are parts of the Bible that are rollicking stories. Gethsemane, I think, is, is a, in some ways, almost a harrowing passage, can I say. Look, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not somebody who, I would say you, you trust Jesus, that the offer is free. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to do enough good deeds to balance out the bad. You don't need to be especially religious one way or another. But you do need to put your trust in Christ. Someone is drinking that cup. The wages of sin are death. Okay, we, we are going to face God. Everyone in this room, all of us, are going to face God one day. And someone is drinking the cup of his wrath. When Jesus sees what that cup is, he sweats blood and falls to the ground. And he knows better than you or I what it is. His offer is, I, I will drink it all for you. So you've got nothing left to do. You won't have to pay any punishment. I, done, dusted, fully forgiven. But your choice is, trust Christ to have drunk the cup for you, or you will drink it yourself. That's what the Bible talks about, hell. Hell is not just ceasing to exist or sort of being away from God, but that's kind of okay because I didn't believe in him anyway. Hell is a terrifying place. We see how terrifying it is in Christ's fear here. Christ trembled. 
how terrifying it must be. But also, secondly and finally, do you, do you see the comfort of Gethsemane? The challenge is there. There is no other way. But do you see the comfort? It works out in three ways. It's, first of all, a comfort just to see Jesus in the garden. Remember, who is it? Who is it that's kneeling? Who is it that's falling on his face? Who is it that's sweating blood? Ultimately, it's the Son of God. It's not just a good man who decided to go on a rescue mission. Okay. It is that second person of the Trinity. The God who, who, you know, who is invisible, immortal, a spirit, a God who is without body, without boundary, who's not constrained by time or space, the God who knows all things, planned all things, a God who never worries or doubts or fears, is now in a garden, having taken on flesh. He's sweating, his heart is beating, his capillaries are bursting. And that God, that immortal, omnipotent, all-powerful creator God, now knows fear. Jesus is the son of God. He's omnipotent. His voice shatters the cedars of Lebanon, the, tell, the, 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 uh, the Old Testament tells us. He spoke creation into being. And now he's praying. He's dependent because he's also a man. Uh, Jesus, the son, was, is the God of glory. He's above all suffering. God doesn't suffer, does he? God can't suffer. Okay? You can't fire arrows at God. You can't hurt God. God it, he's beyond the universe. There's no way God can suffer. If the mightiest angel dared to attack God, nothing. Swat it away like you or I would swat a fly. Not even notice. The Bible says that God is eternally blessed and happy, abounds in joy. And here he is, that same God, verse 44, in anguish. God cannot suffer. And yet here, because he's become man, the son of God suffers for us. God is all-powerful, and yet here, because he's become man, the son of God, well, his own will will not be done. And why? Why is he suffering? Well, for you. He had no need. He could have just stayed in eternal glory. But so much does he want to rescue you from that cup of wrath that he's willing to be in the garden. It's his own choice. He wasn't forced there. The father didn't force the son. Remember, they were one God, one will but so much do they love you that they come with this rescue plan, the sun to earth. Look, if you're in tough times at the moment. Christian, he's been there too. Uh, He is a God who is acquainted with suffering. The Bible describes Jesus as a man who, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, not just cold and heartless and distant. He has been there, he knows pain. Uh, He loves you, not with a cold, distant love, but a sympathetic, understanding love. There's huge comfort just seeing him in the garden, but but there's more comfort, I think. There's comfort in realising that here, Jesus sees the cross clearly for the first time. Of course, Jesus always knew he was going to die. As as, as God, he knows everything, but as man, he he knew that his mission was to die. There's a painting of of Jesus um, by a guy called Holman Hunt. And um, children, do you remember what Jesus' dad did for a living? His human dad, I should say. Adopted dad. Does everyone know what Joseph did for a living? No. He was a carpenter. Okay, he was a carpenter. Okay, he made things um, with wood, presumably. Uh, and there's a picture a guy called Holman Hunt painted uh, uh, called The Shadow of Death. And because G- Joseph was a carpenter, 
presumably, we're not told this, presumably, as he grew up, Jesus learned how to be a carpenter too. He didn't start doing the preaching and things until he was 30. And the painting by Hunt is of Jesus in the woodshed. And it's the end of the day and he's stretching out his arms like this. He's a hard day's work and he's stretching out. And as he stretched out his arms, the sun comes through the shed window and the shadow is, is cast on the wall behind him. And as the shadow of his arms falls on the wall behind, that the shadows fall just where the nails are hanging on the wall. And so the shadow of Christ on the wall behind it is as if, what is, as if he's being crucified. I'm not, sure painting a, I'm not sure painting pictures of Jesus is a particularly great idea, but the point is a right one. All the way through Jesus' life, he lived with the shadow of death hanging over him. He knew in increasing measure that he would have to go and die. And remember, he's a man, so he didn't know that when he was born. When he was born, he couldn't talk. Okay, how many things does a baby know? How many things does a baby know exactly? How many things? Zero. Zero. That's right. Babies, dumbass, aren't they? They don't know anything, okay? You try to talk to a baby, they don't talk to you. They have to learn. How many words does a baby know? Zero. How many books has a baby read? Zero. That's right, zero. Not a fan of babies. Yeah. Um, as they grow up, they learn, don't they? Jesus as a man had to learn. And the incredible thought is, Jesus as a man had to learn about this death. So as he read the Bible, uniquely, he would slowly be learning these things. Isaiah tells us, morning by morning, you waken my ear as one who is taught. Speaking of Jesus. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. He's not superman, he's not so downloaded. He learns too. Yes, God will teach him some stuff directly, no doubt. But Jesus too had to learn the Bible. But as he learned the Bible, he would realise it was about him and his death. So imagine him reading Genesis 3, where God says one day... Uh, you know, someone will come to crush the serpent, but his heel will be bruised. And Jesus thinks, ha, huh, that's me. He reads the story of Abraham and Isaac, the beloved son who's meant to die for sin, and thinks, ha, huh, that is me. I won't be spared by my father. He reads Isaiah 53, that the servant who'll be pierced for our transgressions and thinks, that is me. He reads of Jonah, three days in the well, and then resurrected back to life to go and preach to the nations. Jesus said, that is me. Jesus learns. It's an astounding thought. So he always knew he was going to die. What's new in Gethsemane? Well, what's new is that the full revelation of what that wrath-bearing death is going to be like is made known to Jesus. Okay. Jesus hasn't spent his whole life falling over, sweating blood. Why is it so intense now? as the hour approaches, because here, finally, he sees the fullness of what it's going to mean to drink that cup, how horrific it's going to be. And he has to see it in all its fullness, because Jesus has to be a willing sacrifice. He can't go, if you like, blindfold to the cross. Do you ever have friends who say to you, can, can you do me a favour? And you've learned to ask what the favour is before you say yes. Okay, we had that, I remember someone saying to my wife once, so, can you do me a favour? And she said, yes, sure, whatever. And then the friend said, do you mind just catering all the pudding for our wedding? <laughs> Which part I stepped in and said, yeah, she may not, but I do. So let's roll that back a bit. Jesus, Jesus to, to, to do us the ultimate favour, to, to go graciously to the cross for us, needs to know what he's going to be facing. It needs to be a willing sacrifice. Here, as it were, the curtain is pulled back and he gazes into the flames. He sees, God reveals to him the horror of what it's going to be like. And still he agrees to plunge. 
still he agrees to go for you and me into that death. Can you see his love? Can you see how much he must love you to willingly go to such a fate? He's there in the garden. It's an amazing act of grace already. He sees the cross clearly, the horror of what's coming. And then finally he sees his people clearly. Because he sees that the punishment, he sees what the wrath is going to be like, clearly. He therefore sees, do you get this? He sees how bad we must be to deserve this punishment. As he sees fully revealed to him that the horror of the sentence, he therefore knows how horrendous we must be to deserve that sentence. So imagine you're outside a court. So you're in a court where the judge says, if you've been a burglar, you know, I'm going to send you to prison for, say, the court. And you see some of the baddies coming out, okay, some of the criminals coming out. And the first one comes out <coughs> in handcuffs. And the policeman says, well, he is going to prison for a year. And you think, well, must have done something quite bad. And then the next one comes out. And the policeman says, he's going to prison for five years. And then the next one comes out. And the policeman says, he's going to prison for 100 years. Which one's done the worst thing, do you think? Yeah, the one who's going for 100 years. When you find out what the punishment is, you realise you must have done something really bad. Jesus sees here what the punishment for, the, for our sin is. Okay, he sees this cup of wrath clearly. So he knows how bad we are. Why is that so important? Why is that a comfort rather than crushing? Because still he goes to the cross. Not my will, but yours. Still he's willing to go. Knowing how horrendous it will be for him and how wicked we are, still he loves us. Do you see why it's a comfort? Jesus isn't a soldier dying for his noble friends, dying for his mates. He's dying for his enemies. You may doubt the love of God for you, Christian or or not Christian. Uh, You may fear that your sin, your particular sin, is too great, or you've done it too many times. You are too unclean, too corrupt. But Jesus knows all that. He knows how horrendous and unfaithful we are. To be honest, he knows what you're going to do between now and dying. You're not going to catch Jesus by surprise. He sees how awful the punishment will be. He sees how wicked, therefore, we are. And what's his reaction? Is it disgust? Get away from me. Why should I die for these kind of people? No. Instead, it is a willing sacrifice. He keeps going, not my will, but yours. The comfort of Gethsemane is that God the Son knows you at your worst. He knows what you deserve. And yet so great is his love that he continues to walk into the very flames in order that you might be rescued. And so he goes. And a day later, he drinks the cup. The skies go dark, he cries out, and his final words are, it is finished. The cup is drained. So just very simply, let me say as we close, don't ever doubt the love of God for you. If you don't trust him at the moment, come to him. There's nothing you need to do. The cup is drained, it is finished. Trust him and you'll be fully forgiven. If you are a Christian and you begin to doubt the circumstances in your life, say, well, he can't love me if he's putting me through this. Or your own guilt is crushing you down. Look again at Gethsemane. See the kneeling figure. 
see that the sweat that drips from him, smell the olive oil in the garden, and realize there is an unconquerable love that sent Christ to the cross. If he's willing to do that for you, then that love will never be shaken, never end. You'll never be torn from him. And no sin can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your grace and kindness in sending uh, your Son to die for our sins. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your courage, uh, for your goodness, for your mercy, willing to go and drink that cup uh, for the worst of sinners. And we pray, therefore, that you would send your Spirit to open our eyes to see how great your love is, how wide, how deep, uh, how never-failing uh, your love is for your people. And we pray for those who don't yet know you, that in your mercy you would open their eyes and allow them too to rejoice in the freedom of the love of God. This we pray uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.